Hello. We're really glad that you've decided to have some of your time to spend with us as we discuss spiritual things. I'm making disciples in the West. And we're really excited today because today we're going to begin a discussion and we are beginning this discussion with reconnect in terms of love. All you need. That says what some of our prophets of our time. And it really does capture an essential reality of our lives, which is our desire for love. Because we all want to be loved, right? I want to be loved. I'm sure you want to be loved. Have you ever said, yeah, I don't want to be loved. I want to be rejected. Have you ever had a situation where you think, you know, I want to be despised. I want to be hurt. I want to be Very few people have that type of mentality. Instead, I like to think that most of us would agree that deep down we all want to be loved. But what is it that this love is that we're seeking? I'm sure you'd agree with people who think they're seeking love, but they're really seeking sex or personal validation or something else like that. Looking for love and looking for sex, by the way, are two quite different things because going after sex doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get love. Sex does not mean love. And there are a lot of people in life who say, yeah, I'm looking for love, but they're really looking for some a yes man, somebody who is going to validate them and validate the way they think and feel and act at all times. And that's not really love either. No, deep down, what we're really looking for is someone to take some time out of it to show concern, to get to know us, and to go beyond just a superficial relationship, but actually to know us and love us anyway. Because we all have a lot of superficial relationships, right? If you, are you on Facebook? If you're on Facebook, how many friends do you have? Uh, I have over 2,000 friends on Facebook, and I don't have a very deep relationship with very many of them. We all have plenty of very superficial relationships in our lives, right? But deep down, those relationships are really looking for a deep and trusting relationship where we have felt open and honest enough to actually let people know who we are and receive the wonderful joy and grace of them still wanting to be in our lives and to like us even though they know who we really are. We're looking for people to invest some time into us, to provide real care and concern, not just or patronizing suggestions. I'm sure you've had that situation where you've asked for advice and you get somebody preaching at you about this, that, or the other, or you get this kind of very superficial thing that doesn't really deal with your, your challenge or difficulty, and that, that's not helpful. That's just useless. And really, we want to be confident that no matter what might happen, no matter what trials or tribulations we might experience, that there's going to be some people in our lives who are going to be there for us no matter what. No matter misunderstood we are, no matter how much suffering we experience, no matter how tortured our resistance might be, that there's somebody who's still there present in our lives. Now, I we're, we're looking for all these things in one special person, husband or wife, after whom we, we seek her, hopefully, otherwise we have, if, if we are in that kind of relationship. That is a sexual relationship. 
there is desiring a sex in that relationship, but ideally that relationship is more than just a sexual relationship, that there is a emotional and mental and spiritual nakedness as well as the physical really have a life partner, somebody with whom you're in going to endure the peaks and the valleys of life, a person with whom you grow old. And that's something to pursue after, whether you currently have that person or not, and that's a wonderful thing. But even if you find that wonderful person, even if you have that wonderful But there is no human being can bear the weight of being the only source of support and love for another human being. And that is also seek out other sources of love and support. Maybe not the same depth or the same type, but of similar type. Family, for instance, is a very natural and often support. The people with whom you're related, of course, that goes a whole joke that... Um, uh, your family has to love you because you share the same blood, the same um, genetic connection. We also seek out friendships with people who are we have something in common. We have the same hobbies. We're at the same stage in life. We have similar backgrounds. Uh, we have shared beliefs and so on and so forth. And so what we're really doing in all of this, I hope that we can see, is that we're seeking relationships, deep relationships, in which we fully are known and can receive unconditional acceptance and support. Now, by saying that, we have to admit a challenging thing for us. We're seeking these relationships, which means that we cannot be sufficient in and of ourselves. That if we're seeking to share life with one person or many people, we don't want to live life on our own. And if you think about it, very few people are at hermits, people who have no contact uh, they're going to be up in a rural area, and if you're a truly hermit, you're not going to be listening to this. We're not going to be able to have this conversation because you'd have no means by which to access it because you are cutting yourself off from society. So clearly, those type of people are very few and far. People need engagement and interaction with other people. And this has been demonstrated uh, biologically and empirically. Um, in, in the past, in, in certain countries, there were some very tragic and terrible events that took place where people were in orphanages and they were not given much direct human contact. And that has served as a source of experiment, not intended. But it's shown us very clearly that children who are held and comforted and cared for as babies and children show greater brain development than those who have been neglected. It, it's part of where we respond biologically to care and concern and love. So we do need relationships. We do need this. But it's a great risk to do this. Because if we're searching for love, we're searching to place trust in other people. And people, I'm sure you've noticed this by now, Disappoint. Invariably. Everybody fails and everybody falls short. And we risk failure and rejection and great emotional pain in order to receive that kind of love and to find people who will love us. And a lot of times that pain is from the ones we love the most and the ones with whom we have the deepest relationships. 
And it may not be immediately, it may be years into the relationship that something like that happens. That is a great risk. That's the risk we're taking any time we try to build a relationship. But yet we're still going after that relationship, aren't we? We're still compelled forward to seek those relationships despite the risks. Because to live without loving others and to be loved in turn is universally recognized to be a miserable and tragic existence. There's a reason why Ebenezer Scrooge is Ebenezer Scrooge, and nobody wants to be Ebenezer Scrooge before he received the visitation of the angels in that story. Contrary to this, we have this myth in our society that's perpetuated, the idea that one can pick one itself up by their bootstraps and advance on their own. And it's true that there's a lot that can be done with one's individual initiative. We certainly don't want to to give anybody the impression that individual initiative is a bad thing. But nobody does it on their own. Everybody who has ever prospered has done so because others have supported them in another way, some way or another. Our very civilization, our very society exists on the basis of what we call a social contract. It's not something you sign. It's just the idea that Everybody, even if they're out for their own self-interest, they can't do everything. And so it's their self-interest to sell their products or their services to obtain resources for their product services to spend on other people's products and services and that we all do better off and we all work together. As opposed to each individual trying to do his or her own thing without any source of contact or assistance from anybody else. And And if we didn't have that, our society would collapse instantly. That level of trust, which is even very basic, we, we'd fall apart. So we are interdependent. We are not truly independent. We've got to come to that realization. That's very hard for Americans. Because Americans have had it beaten into us that we're independent. But really, we're not. We still do need each other. This is not a 21st century thing, though. There's a good reason for it. It's been going on throughout time. Because people have been seeking loving relationships with others since time immemorial. And why we seek after these relationships is a question that has an answer perhaps more profound and greater than we could ever imagine because it really gets right to the heart of who we are as human beings and what our place is in this universe. Because when we talk about love, we start talking about the essence of that which, uh, to which humanity aspires. But why are we aspiring to love? Well, according to the teachings of Christianity based in the, the Bible, This has everything to do with God and what he intends with his creation. Christians believe in God as he has revealed himself through the creation and in his message to humanity in Jesus and in the Bible. In Romans chapter 1, 19-21, Paul talks about how we can see uh, the reality of God, his divine nature and his and his power in the things that have been made. In Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 3, we're told that, in fact, uh, Jesus continues to uphold the universe by his power. And all things hold together in him, also in Colossians. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 15 through 17, we learn that the scriptures are, make us wise unto faith and uh, equip the man of God for every good work. So that's why we're going to be talking about the Bible and using it as our guide for our conversation about love. And when we get into the pages of the Bible, we see very quickly, from the very first page, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And God made man in his image. Male and female, he created them. And in Acts chapter 17, many years later, the Apostle Paul, when speaking to the Athenians about 
the Christ begins to say about God in verse 24 of Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring so not only has God made us in his image he's made us and given us our various places to seek after him but we are able to find him he is in our midst because we are his offspring and so that gets us the question what does it mean to be made in the image of God well, to be made in God's image, it means to reflect the characteristics of God to some degree. If you're made in somebody else's image, if you're, uh, what do people mean if you've ever been called the spitting image of somebody? Uh, the idea is that the way you look, or perhaps the way you act, or perhaps the way you look and act, is very similar to the way that somebody else looks and acts. Now, the, appear, the, the way that we are made in God's image cannot be physical. It cannot be because we have eyes, ears, nose, and a mouth, and we have a face, that we have these human characteristics, because in uh, John 4.24 we're told that God is spirit. So how is it that we reflect God's characteristics? Well, we are conscious. And trying to define consciousness easily is very difficult, but it means that we, we are aware of ourselves. We know there was a time before us, there will be a time after us that we will die. Um, we have advanced abilities to communicate and we possess reason. We can deliberate and, and make decisions. These are much more like what we see from God than what we'd see from the animals. And that's well and good, but what if our cre- being created in the image of God goes well beyond that? And in order to talk about this, we need to spend a moment considering the nature of God which is one of those very lofty subjects, right? These, this is where the, we, the theologians come in and, and people start wondering, what's the point in this? Theology seems to be uh, completely bizarre and strange up in the ivory towers debating questions that have nothing to do with life. And, and unfortunately, that's a character that sometimes has reason, but it, it's really not helpful, and it, it doesn't have to be that way. We can't know everything about the nature of God because, as the prophet Isaiah tells us, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are the thoughts of God higher than our thoughts, and his ways are higher than our ways in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. But what he has told us, we are able to understand the things that he's given us uh, are, belong to us in Deuteronomy 29, 29, uh, says Moses. One of the great proclamations in the Bible, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, and James 2, 19, other places, is that God is one. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is your God. Yahweh is the personal name of God. Yahweh is one. God is one. When we look in Scripture, though, we can see in many places, for instance, John 6 and verse 27, Jesus says that the Father is God. But yet Jesus, the, the Son of God, the Word of God, in John chapter 1 and verse 1 and verse 14 is called God. And in 2 Peter 1 and verse 21, the Holy Spirit is called God. Now, it might be you say, well, these are really just one person, just in different forms. But in John chapter 8, verses 16 through 19, Jesus says that there are two witnesses to him, the Father and himself. So they're different persons. But yet, as we're told in Colossians 2 and verse 9, that in him, in Jesus, dwells the fullness of God in bodily form. 
So it's not like we have one God above minor gods. No, they are equally God, but they're three people. A three in person. Now, how can that be? This is the mystery of the nature of God, and perhaps you've heard about the mystery of the Trinity. And again, it's not that we can fully understand it, but we have to get back to the fact that we might assume when the Bible says God is one, that that means that God is one person. But the Bible never actually comes out and says that God is one person. Instead, God is one in essence. He has the same essence. He has the same substance. He's spirit. Uh, He has the same will. He has the same purpose and intention. He has the same mind. In short, we can probably say, in in a very summary way, that God is one in relational unity. And this is beautifully captured in the prayer of Jesus that he gives in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, the, the twelve disciples that he's been praying for, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, so that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. There's a lot in those verses. We'll be coming back to this very passage. But we want to note there that the unity there is this, even as you and I are one, that they may be perfectly one. The idea is that the Father and the Son are one. Okay, so how can God be one if he's three persons? Well, there's this one thing about God that a lot of people know. It's said in 1 John 4 and verse 8 that God is love. Love is the answer that helps us understand the nature of God. And love, by its very nature, demands an object to love. Love has been defined in so many different ways that we understand the basic concept of love from 1 John 4, 1 Corinthians 13, and other passages, that love seeks the best interest of the object of love, the one that is beloved. Now, if God were one person, and God is love, that would mean that God is either the ultimate narcissist, God loves himself, or that God now stands in need of something. God needs to have a creation. God needs to have something else than himself in order to be love. And that is not consistent with his standing as God and what we know of God from the Bible. Now, if God is one of three persons, this makes sense all of a sudden because what's going on is that God is now sharing love within himself. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. We've got this beautiful situation where God is love because God shares love within himself. And in fact, they share such great love and such unity that despite the fact that they are three people, three persons, we call God him. They are so unified that we can consider them as a singular, even though they are three in one. So God shares love within himself, and that love that he shares himself gets shared beyond himself in his offspring that he creates. And what do we see in Acts 17 and verse 28? But that humans are his offspring. We are God's offspring. And so we can make sense of why we're seeking after relationships. If God is one in relational unity, or that he is one because of his relationship, and we are made in the image of God, it means that we are made for relationship. Because our God is one in relationship, 
Therefore, we're seeking to be one in relationship as well. And we do seek to relate. We re- want to relate to the powers above us that we're seeking after God. And we want to relate with one another as well. Therefore, we ourselves are part of how God's divine nature is manifest in his creation, as Paul explains in Romans 1, 19-21. That as God is one in relationship, we do not feel as if we have true unity unless we are in the relationship with others. And that's why we shouldn't even expect to find full sufficiency or full independence in ourselves. Because if God is insufficient in terms of one person, how can we as one individual people be sufficient on our own? No, we're only going to find our full satiety and our full satisfaction, the full humanity by being in relationship with others, just as God shares a relationship with himself. So as God is one in three persons, one in relational unity, and love, and the Creator, and as man has been made in his image, so therefore man is made for a relationship with God and with one another. And this sounds so beautiful. It seems so evident, though. Well, we seek love, we seek relationships, God is one in relationship and made us for a relationship, what's the big deal? Okay, we should be able to find relationships, maintain relationships, everything should be great. That's not the way it works, does it? The love we're seeking doesn't come automatically and becomes quite difficult to find. And so now we have this very crazy situation, don't we? God is love, one in relationship, made us for relationship, and seeks relationship. How can it be so difficult to develop and maintain these loving relationships? If we're trying to find love and to develop these relationships, why do we seem to have such difficulty finding and developing these relationships? And there's one great word to describe that problem. That problem is alienation. We're, we've got this alienation about we're separated we, we, and we're afraid. We're separated and we're afraid. And the reason we're separated and afraid is because of sin. That's what the Bible says, Romans 3 and verse 23, that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because all of us, as James, the brother of Jesus, explains in James chapter 1, that we have been tempted when we have been lured and enticed by our own desires. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death in James 1, 14-15. So we need love. We know we need love. But what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to act in unloving ways. Because of our desires, because we want to protect ourselves, because we want our own interest, and so on and so forth. Let's just consider for just a second the beautiful passage about love in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, Love is patient and kind, in verse 4. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You may have heard that in a wedding. Maybe you had that in your own wedding. It's a beautiful sentiment. But how hard is that? How easy is it for us to be long-suffering and kind? How easy is it for us to not envy or boast? How tempted are we to be arrogant, to seek our own best interest? How often are we irritated, irritable or resentful? How many times do we 
find ourselves tempted to rejoice at wrongdoing and not rejoice at the truth. How many times do we find it very difficult to hope all things, endure all things, believe all things, bear all things? So we understand the beauty of love. We understand that we want that so desperately, but we also have the things we think we want, the, the desires, the fears that, that, that propel us on our own trajectories. And it causes harm to ourselves, and it causes harms to others. And so it seems that some this ideal, this beauty, is just out of reach. And so we, we're so tempted to settle for things that provide momentary pleasure or escape. We might try to find love through them, or we try to run away from our problems by them. Fear, we give in to fear so easily, don't we? We fear we're going to be rejected, so we don't really put a lot of effort into relationships. We don't, we don't, we don't open up in relationships. We're fear, and we're, we're walking around. Aren't you walking around being, sometimes feeling like a fraud, perhaps, in life? That, that you're waiting for somebody to expose you for who you really are? Or, or maybe you're afraid that you're just not really good enough to be loved. That if, if they really knew who I was, or if they really knew what I was about, they wouldn't love me. They wouldn't accept me. They wouldn't want to be around me. How many of us are walking around with that feeling deep inside us? And therefore, we find ourselves alone, wanting a relationship, deeply yearning for a relationship, but alone. And in this situation, we find ourselves separated from God. And that's a big problem, part of our sin problem, is that the sin separates and alienates us from God. In Isaiah 59, the prophet says that our iniquities have separated us from our God. And in Ephesians chapter 2, and in verse 12, Paul talks about the people who are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And, and perhaps we've had our own moments like that in life, and we've seen others in, in that stage of life. And that's a very, very bad point to be in life. No, no hope, no God, no Christ, no state, no, no, nothing to be rooted in. And we're in this state, we can't follow God's purpose for our lives. We can't seek after God in, in, because we're hostile to God. We cannot please Him in that situation, as Paul says in Romans 8, verse 6 through 8. And, and we notice in Romans chapter 1 that when we've turned aside from God as God and started serving our desires as our gods, that God just gives us over into deeper lust and to, and to do these all kinds of wickedness. And... and and have you ever had the time in your life where you knew what you needed to do, but you just couldn't do it? That you felt like some force, perhaps, or you just couldn't get the energy up, or just felt like it was impossible to do what you're supposed to do. And that's the thing. A lot of people know their behavior is wrong. A lot of people know that what they're doing to themselves is harmful, but they keep doing it anyway. They've been given over to the sin. They're suffering from this deep alienation from God. And, and look, we don't want to kid around here. If we remain in that condition, nothing good that we've ever done is going to make a difference because God is going to reject us on the day of judgment because we've rejected Him. We can even say we believe in Him. If we haven't been doing His will, Jesus said, we're going to be cast out as workers of iniquity in Matthew 7, 21-23. Romans 2, 5-11, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9, Paul makes it abundantly clear that a day is coming upon which God is going to judge the world and we're going to receive what we've done in the flesh, either to obedience and goodness or condemnation if we've been disobedient. And so that's a bad situation to be in, separated from God. 
we are also separated from one another. Because sin isn't just something that separates us from God. Sin separates us from one another. And that's something we've been dealing with ever since the end of the Tower of Babel. Ever since languages got confused and people speak different languages in Genesis chapter 11, we've found ways of defining us versus defining them. And, and this separation has gotten to the point where there's nobody on this earth that you can find that you can't find some reason to make a distinction between you and them. That it may be based upon class. It may be based upon nationality. It might be based upon geographic origin. It could be based on religion. It could be based on ethnic race. It could be based on any number of factors. Even, perhaps sports loyalties we can find reasons to say this is us and you are them and to use that as a wall as a barrier as a way to separate and alienate us quote unquote from them quote unquote so this is the situation we find ourselves in the world we're, we're, we're separate from God we're separate from one another we're hating others being hated in turn in Titus 3 and verse 3 which is an apt description of how humans tend to treat each other. Is this any way to live? This is not any way of living. This is not fun at all. And so sin is our problem, and it affects everything. Uh, we've been talking about some of these ideals, you know, the, the uh, wonderful ideal of finding that one perfect person to spend your life with. But we know very easily and very quickly that there are a lot of times that that special someone may not actually be that special. And they may use you or hurt you, betray you. And, and sometimes the most ungodly sins happen in, in marriage relationships. You know, we've talked about how family should be this place where you have people who love you because they have to because they're related to you because they have the same blood. But we, we know that there are times where parents are abusive. Parents uh, don't love their children the way they should. Or it may not be parents. It may be other people who have difficulties and there's there's all sorts of abuse and all kinds of horrors that are done within families how many times have we been hurt ourselves or hurt others intentionally accidentally in relationships because of sin we've put our trust and in, in, in the more trust you put in somebody the more betrayed the more hurt it, it, it feels because of uh of our expectations and because of how wounded we feel and because of this and other reasons, far too many people look for love in the wrong places and they use the wrong ways. Sex and drugs, money, fame, and things like that are very poor substitutes for love, very poor substitutes for deep, meaningful relationships. And in the end, too many people are motivated by selfish desires, greed and fear and other less than pure desires. And when that's your motivation, you're not going to be able to find and share in true love. And that's why we all seek after love, but we all have such a hard time finding it. Because we can always try to find that lower-hanging fruit that we think is delicious. Or we count internal costs and it's just not worth the rejection. Or we just are too concerned about our own good to, to pursue after what we know is best for us. So that's a big problem. And we humans like to fix problems when we hear problems, right? We're, we want to fix problems. But this is one problem that we're not going to solve on our own. Romans 3 and verse 20, nobody's going to be justified by works of the law. We can't decide, okay, I'm going to tilt the scales now. I'm going to do a lot more good than bad. Because, as James says in James 2, 9 11, if you've broken the law in one place, you're guilty of it. If you're up before the judge and you're on trial for stealing, 
you can tell the judge all you want about how you haven't killed or raped, you haven't committed adultery, you haven't extorted, you haven't sped, you've done all these wonderful good things, but if you have actually done the stealing, you're guilty of the law. You are called a transgressor. And so, therefore, our good works can never outweigh our evil deeds, because one evil deed is sufficient to tip the scale, and we, we can't, there's nothing we can do to make up for that, and, and which one of us hasn't sinned at some point? We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. So it's not a solution that we're going to have in ourselves. Instead, God provides a solution because of God's love for us, God's extravagant love that, that knows no bounds. And God does for us through Jesus, His Son, what, he, what we could not do for ourselves. He was Jesus, the Son of God. God the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, as we saw in John 1 and verse, 1 and verse 14. And he experienced temptation. He suffered in all points like we, tempted in all points like we are, yet did not sin in Hebrews 4 and verse 15. And because of that, he offered himself up for our sins, dying on a cross, suffering humiliation and shame so that we could be forgiven of our sins. In Matthew 26, 20 through 20 and other places. Through his death, God extends opportunity for us to be reconciled to him. And our relationship with him can be restored. That that sin problem we have, that sin can be forgiven. And that we can be reconnected back to God through Jesus. And that is a way that we can then become conformed to the image of the Son. That we can then begin to be the humans God always intended us to be in Jesus. In Romans 5, 6 to 11, and chapter 8, verse 29. And so the wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus is that through him we can be reconciled back to God and reestablish our relationship with him through serving Jesus his son as Lord to his glory. Philippians 2, 5-11 and many other passages. That's a wonderful gospel. A lot of people put it in right there. You, if you can do that and you become a Christian, you are in a great position, you've got a personal relationship with God and that's great. But the scriptures show it doesn't end just there. Because... We're not just reconciled back to God through Jesus, but through Jesus we have an opportunity to be reconciled back to one another. In Ephesians chapter 2, we were talking earlier about how people were stateless and hopeless and godless. And in context, Paul's talking about those who are called the uncircumcision, the Gentiles, those who are not part of the nation of Israel, not part of the Jews who had a special covenant from God. Now that was the situation they were in. In verse 13, he says, In Christ Jesus, now you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So this is a beautiful thing. He's talking here about the Jews and the Gentiles, and the fact that this boundary wall, the barrier that became that came between us, Jesus broke that down through his death, that Jesus killed the hostility. The true peace could exist not because they had decided to stop being angry with each other, hostile to each other, but that Jesus actually killed the hostility. The reason why there was hostility, the, the, the boundary that had been built up, he tore down. And it's not just for Jew and Gentile. As he says in Galatians 3, 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither male nor female, there is neither male nor, uh, slave nor free. You are all one in Christ Jesus. 
that all the things that we talked about that want us to be separated and divided from each other in the world are to be canceled out and killed through the through the, the death of Jesus on the cross. And this is a very profound message, radical in every age. In fact, as Paul continues to say in chapter 3 of Ephesians, in verse 10, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, what is this manifold wisdom? Well, that the Jew and Gentile, the people of all sorts of nationalities and with all these differences can become one, that what they share in Jesus is of greater value and worth than anything in the world that might divide them. That through each one having been reconnected to God in Christ in a deep, meaningful relationship, now they can share in that relationship with each other. As we saw in that prayer that Jesus said in John 17. Remember, we said we're going to go back there? What does Jesus say there? He's asking for all of these who are going to believe through their word that they all may be one as you are in me and I in you, that they may be in us and that the world may know that you believe me, if you have sent me the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. That they is us. God wants us to be perfectly one, that the unity we have with one another in God and Christ is the same as the unity that God himself has between the Father and the Son and the Spirit as well. That's what we're called to, that deep relationship. Because, yes, we want we are supposed to be one with God, but to be one with God means to be on his path. And if you are on the path of God and, and somebody else is on the path of God, then you're sharing that path together. And that's why Paul John says, he says in 1 John 1 and verse 8, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one with another in the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. That our, our fellowship, our joint participation is based on this shared walk that we are walking together, we're, we're seeking after God together. And this unity that we're supposed to have is to be based in love. That's the whole message Paul has in 1 Corinthians 13. He's not giving a wedding sermon there, is he? In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's trying to show the Corinthian Christians they need to be one. They need to love each other. And also, in another beautiful passage in, in Philippians chapter 2, beginning... In verse 1, Paul says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Beautiful. It's a call to unity. In love, to consider the needs of others of greater value than ourselves. Where can this happen? Well, God has a place where this is supposed to happen. Where man is reconciled not just to God, but also to one another. That is in the church of Christ. That the people in the, of God in the New Testament are called the church, this Greek word ecclesia, the assembly, as a congregation of the people of Israel. In fact, in Matthew 16 and 18, Peter says that upon this, to Peter, Jesus says, upon this rock I'll build my church. The church is nothing more than the people who make it up. And they are to work together to glorify and honor Jesus. And they can only do that when they love each other as Jesus has loved them. 
And we see that in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, many of the passages. It's a beautiful idea that we need to love each other. That's how people know we are His disciples. As we have been loved by Jesus, we love one another. And therefore, we need to reconnect with God in Christ by becoming His obedient servants, as we can see in Romans 6 and other passages. But we cannot, tru- we cannot truly be reconciled back to God, whom we have not seen, while remaining alienated and separated from the people of God whom we can see. We cannot truly say that we love God if we do not love our fellow people of God. That's the argument that John is making First 1 John 4, 19-21. How can you say, I love God, when you're not seeing God, when you hate your brother? It, it, this makes sense. We, we can see each other. We're in each other's lives. We need to love one another. We need to share in that. How can we be one with God if we all say we're God's people, but we're all divided and separated from each other? And that is why it is within the church that we should find people with whom we share the most precious bond of faith in Christ. Because what we share in shared faith in Christ is greater than anything we could share in the world. It doesn't matter if we're the same geographic location. It shouldn't matter that we are of the same ethnicity or class or that we've had similar experiences or they're quote just like us. If we have this bond in Christ... That bond we have in Christ is greater than all these other things. And therefore it's within the church that we should be able to develop truly deep, loving relationships that we're really seeking. And so as we continue to explore in the the few weeks to come how we are to reconnect with God and with each other, we'll see how we can do this. Because we've we've talked in wonderful things. Okay, this is the way it should be. Well, how can we Share that love with each other. How are we going to do this? Well, that's what we're going to talk about when we talk about in the future acceptance, support, and strength. But for now, we can see that relationship is important, that this love that we're seeking is out there. It is what we're about because we are about relationships because the God who made us is one in relationship. And that our ultimate goal in life needs to be to be reconciled back to that God, to share in the blessings of life and love by being one with God and that that cannot come unless we are also one with one another as the people of God. We cannot be truly connected to our fellow man while alienated from God. We cannot be truly connected with God while alienated from a fellow man. We need to be one as He is one that we can be one with each other and one with God in Christ. And therefore, let us do all we can to develop these relationships in Christ and be reconciled both to God and to each other. Perhaps we've been, we've been talking about this, maybe, maybe you haven't been a Christian. And yet you can see now what it's all about. Now, that's really what we're hoping that we perhaps can see. Wow, the, the, I am a for life. I need to be reconciled back to God. Maybe some questions about some Whatever, whatever way we talk this, please contact me through my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Or if you live in the Los Angeles area or visiting Los Angeles, we'd love, love to connect. Please find us online at venturechrist.org or look us up on Facebook, Google Plus, meet up in Twitter. We again thank you. Have a great day.